Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best Left Podcast, in which we shall learn about the labor movement as energy and power continues to build and more workers continue to strike to demand better conditions for themselves and all of society, with, unfortunately, not much thanks to be given to either political party. Clips today come from Democracy Now!, On the Media, The Weeds, Counterspin, and The Takeaway. What about the history of the UAW? Explain the seminal moments in UAW history. So in my book, I have chapters on two of the most important strikes in American history. You know, the Flint sit-down strike, which was against General Motors, 1936-37. GM was then the nation's largest company. It was ferociously anti-union. It had like 200 company spies. Whenever there is an effort to form a union local its company spies would infiltrate, you know, it got the cops to beat up, you know, strikers and beat up protesters. And the workers, you know, so this was after the National Labor Relations Act was passed under FDR. Workers were feeling a little more hope, a little more support. And they tried to figure out how do we bring the most powerful company in the nation, maybe on earth, to its knees to recognize a union. And they figured, let's hold a sit down in a key plant that made uh, you know, that stamped the, the bodies, uh, that, that GM needed to produce cars. And for, uh, almost two months, they sat down again in the middle of winter in Flint, Michigan. And, and they really shut down GM and, and FDR and his great labor secretary, Francis Perkins, also placed real pressure on GM to recognize the union that this strike was really hurting GM and hurting the whole nation's economy. I just was in Washington, D.C. and saw the Francis Perkins Department of Labor. Yes. I wonder if President Trump will be changing the name of that building. Uh, But she was the first woman uh, secretary of labor. I I have a chapter in Francis Perkins, who, to my mind, is maybe the most underrated person in American history. And Elizabeth Warren gave a big speech, you know, not far from here in Washington Square the other day. And a lot of it was about the great Frances Perkins, the first female cabinet member, an amazing labor secretary. You know, thanks to her, we have Social Security and unemployment insurance and and child labor laws and minimum wage and 40-hour work. And she she did And the amazing, one thing she didn't get that she continued to fight for for her life. Universal health coverage, yes. Was Medicare for all. Yeah, yeah. So you mentioned uh, Elizabeth Warren and thousands of people turned out for her major talk in Washington Square. Um, she is vying with President Trump for sizes of crowds like Bernie Sanders crowds of the past. Um, let's talk about the presidential candidates and how you rate them when it comes to labor. Stephen Greenhouse. So I moderated a presidential labor forum in Las Vegas. And I gave Elizabeth Warren some of the other candidates copies of my book. So when she talked about Frances Perkins the other day at Washington Square, I wondered, did she crib from my chapter? Maybe she did. That would be very flattering. So uh, this campaign is very different from what Hillary Clinton was doing, you know, in, in 2016. And I, I, in my book, I discussed that I think one of the big reasons the Democrats lost in 2016 was that Hillary, while her written platform sounded very good on labor and workers. She didn't really campaign much on it. And I think workers in, in the Midwest, Western, you know, in, 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 
in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Pennsylvania felt that. And she was perceived as like the candidate of the professional class, lawyers, Wall Street folks, Hollywood celebrities. And Trump came in saying, I'm the blue collar guy. I'm going to shake things up. I realize the system is rigged against you. I argue in my book that He's rigged the system even more against workers and even even more in favor of corporations and the wealthy. So the big so I think, you know, the candidates now, Elizabeth Warren, you know, Bernie Sanders, Cory Booker, uh, Kamala Harris, you know, Joaquin Castro, uh, you know, Beto and Buttigieg, they all see that for the Democrats to win, it's important to really speak to workers and speak to unions. And I think they also realize that one of the reasons the Democrats, a big reason the Democrats lost was that. The unions in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania and Michigan have shrunk greatly. As I explained in the book, you know, thanks to as a result of Scott Walker's war against labor, unions in Wisconsin in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin lost 43 percent of their members, 177,000 people. Trump's winning margin. And yet Walker then was voted out. Walker was voted out. But Trump's winning margin was 22,000. And, and the unions had lost 177,000 members. In Michigan, unions had lost 144,000. Trump won by 11,000. So. Uh, so I think the candidates realize that for the good of the Democrats, it will help to rebuild unions. And, and they also see that the system is broken, that there's huge income inequality, and, and they want to help workers. So, you know, Bernie has a great labor platform to make it easy to unionize. Elizabeth Warren has— Explain what it means to have a great labor oh, so, platform. So, I mean, that, that, you know, so he wants to make it easy to unionize, to have card check. So as soon as the majority of workers at a workplace sign up— uh, they could unionize rather than go through a prolonged election where um, management can really bang workers over the head. He wants greater penalties against uh, employers when they break the law to stop unions. He wants to drop our whole at-will employment system and replace it with a just cause system. To create much. To, so at-will, you can be fired for any reason. If you show up to work and, and your boss doesn't like the color of your shoelaces, you can get fired. You, know, you can't be fired for your age, for your sex, uh, for your race, but at will, you could be fired for anything. And if it's a just cause system, you know, you can only be fired for just cause, you know, that you're incompetent, you keep showing up late. And if you feel you're fired wrongly, then it can go to an arbitrator. Elizabeth Warren has come out with a uh, trade platform that some labor friends of mine say it's far better than anything they've ever seen from a politician. And, and you know, she says for far too long, America's trade negotiators, Democratic and Republican, have really catered to uh, corporate interests and really uh, shortchanged worker and environmental interests in trade negotiations. And she has this very smart, elaborate policy saying we should, when we negotiate trade agreements, we should do it in a way that lifts standards and makes sure that, you know, standards for workers, for the environment, and anti-corruption are lifted. What do you make of Elizabeth Warren framing a lot of the issues as corruption as opposed to systemic? It's I mean, corruption, in my mind, is systemic, and, and, <laughs> and, and you need to change the system. So one of the big points I make in my book is that, you know, things are really tilted very badly against workers because of our campaign finance system is so broken that in the 2016 election, corporations donated $3.4 billion, more than 16 times as much as the 213 given by unions. Each year in Washington, corporate lobby, corporations spend almost $3 billion on lobbying, which is more than 60 times as much as, as unions do. So it, it's a broken system, but it's also a corrupt system. It's like people buy policy. 
I argue. You know, why, when corporate profits in the stock market were already at record levels, did Trump and the Republicans rush out to cut, you know, cut taxes for, for corporations? It's like, you know, he who pays the piper calls the tune. I mean, what about the Obama years? Um, did worker power increase or the opposite? It probably stayed around the same. There were great hopes that under Obama that he would do a lot more to help workers. But every time since FDR that presidents have tried to enact laws to make it easy to unionize, you know, un under LBJ, under Jimmy Carter, under Bill Clinton, and again under Barack Obama, Republican filibusters have blocked it. And it's, you know, you know the fact that there are all these, you know, bright red, you know, low population states, you know, with, with two senators each, as much as California has, that makes it very hard, as you know better than I am, to, to enact progressive legislation. Obama issued a lot of, you know, regulations, but regulations can only do so much. And then Trump has, like, moved very, very quickly to wipe out everything Obama— I mean, did. under Obama, he instructed the Democratic Party not to get involved with the Wisconsin uprising. And, of course, the Wisconsin uprising was this—I mean, Wisconsin had never really seen anything like this, 150,000 people marching in and sleeping in uh, on the Capitol, protesting the busting of unions by then-Governor Walker. But the Democratic Party, where was it? So, you know, I was in Wisconsin covering it. And, and you know, at that point, Obama wasn't that popular. His party had gotten whooped in the 2010 election. And he made the decision, maybe it was a wrong decision, that if I get involved in Wisconsin, it might make things worse for the unions and might make things worse for me. I think in retrospect, seeing how Wisconsin played out very badly for the Democrats and unions, maybe it would have worked out better if he, if he had gotten involved. And remember, you know, Obama did not like to fight. He was, you know, brilliant guy, very honest guy, but he, you know, didn't love to get into these big drag-down knockout fights. And then finally, the assessment of labor under Trump and the power of labor. Well, we keep referring to it. Can you speak specifically um, about uh, where it's gone? What are the Trump policies that have so disempowered workers? So I've written several pieces saying that Donald Trump is— even more anti-worker and anti-union than Ronald Reagan, which is saying a lot. And this is a guy, you know, Reagan didn't run as I'm the huge champion of blue collar folks, whereas Trump ran and said, you know, I'm your best friend. I'm your champion. He's still, you know, he, yesterday he's saying all these UAW members love me and I, I've done great things for them. You know, so he, uh, I wrote this long article for the American Prospect laying out 30, 40 things he's done that are anti-worker. He's rolled back Obama's, uh, Obama extended overtime protection to millions more workers. Trump has scrapped that. Obama issued this very important rule to require Wall Street firms to act in workers' best interest on their 401ks. You know, Trump has wiped out that rule. That could cost a lot of workers tens of thousands of dollars you know, over their 30 or 40 years of investing. Before, and these are just changing, uh, Department changing of Labor rules. rules. Yeah. He's named as Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia, who was corporate America's very top gun, top lawyer in fighting any new worker protections. The son of the, the, son the of, Supreme of Court Antonin Justice. Scalia. And, and uh, he's uh, you know, reduced... Uh, Safety standards for oil and gas rig workers, and, and, and you know, he's you know, overturned an Obama rule. Obama 
was going to limit awarding federal contracts to companies that were repeat violators of minimum wage laws, overtime laws, sexual harassment laws, racial discrimination laws. That went out the window. I just, you know, his Supreme Court nominees have, you know, been parts of some very, very anti-worker labor decisions. His NLRB is doing, you know, super, working super aggressively to try to make it harder to unionize. I mean, it's, it's across the board. Yes, wages have gone up a little under Donald Trump, and therefore he says, I'm a great pro-worker president. Well, wages also went up under Barack Obama. Under Obama, unemployment fell from 10 percent peak to 4.7 percent, dropping 5.3 percentage points. Under the great Donald Trump, it's fallen from 4.7 percent to 3.7 percent. So he keeps saying, I've done so much better than Obama. No, that's, it's, it's not true. Another potential link from the past to the present, the increasingly effective call to collective action. Because, though conventional wisdom says that Roosevelt bestowed workers with a voice as yet another New Deal remedy, an elixir from the Oval Office, Jane McAlevey, writer and longtime labor organizer, explains that that's not how it happened. Yeah, no, that's a little upside down. When American workers won the National Labor Relations Act, That was because in 1933 and 1934, in the beginning of 1935, American workers waged extraordinary mini general strikes all over the United States to put the kind of pressure on FDR to give American workers the right to pull up as legal equals to the bargaining table with their employers. That was not given on high from FDR. In fact, a lot of the profound changes during the civil rights movement happened for the same reason. We have the tapes that show President Johnson on the phone with Martin Luther King. And I'm going to do my best to get other men to do likewise, and I'll have to have y'all's help. I never needed more than I do now. Well, you know you have it, and just feel free to call on You better go create a lot of holy hell down there in the South so that I have Hmm. the ability to do it. That's exactly what was happening in the 1930s in the New Deal. When FDR took over, he did a bunch of other things that were urgent and important. The Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration. I mean, there's a very long list of things that happened in the first hundred days. The National Labor Relations Act was not in the first hundred days. It was 1935 in the summer, two years into it, right? And it happened as a result of workers standing up for themselves and creating a crisis through massive strikes. But in the years since the New Deal, we've seen labor decline in prominence. I mean, starting with the Taft-Hartley Act, right, in 1947, which uh, restricted the activities and the power of the unions. You have right-to-work laws, which undermine the very structure of the unions. So why are we seeing all these strikes now? I think you're seeing the strikes now because we are at the same level of grotesque income inequality that we were in during the Great Depression. You had 25% of America unemployed in 1932. What's similar and different in 2018 when the strikes begin in 2019 and and heading into 2020 in this crucial year is that we definitely have 25% as an index of misery. It's that corporations are more sophisticated today. So it's not rampant unemployment. It's rampant 
underemployment. White American workers transformed in the auto plants in 1936 and 1937 by walking out in massive strikes were conditions that look a lot like the average Amazon warehouse job today, where workers are paid substandard wages, don't get bathroom breaks. Workers are working two jobs, two and a half jobs, just to keep up and try and pay the bills. And that level of frustration is hitting a wall in this country right now. I have to ask you, though, again, why strikes, given the state of the unions? In fact, you've noted that the word strike itself is on the rise. Yeah. The strike that really began all of the strikes we're seeing was, in some ways, the very bold action taken by the teachers in Chicago in 2012, the first really big strike in decades. Negotiations with public school officials now entering a second day. Mayor Rahm Emanuel saying teachers are making the wrong choice to strike with 350,000 students paying the ultimate price. And that strike kind of reawakened a lot of people. It began to do what organizers call raising the expectations of American workers, in Mm -hmm. that case teachers, that they could fight and win and demand more. And they did in Chicago. Many people at the time were talking about how they were overpaid, spoiled brats, and so on. And yet the public did seem to stand with them. When we were talking about what happened from Taft-Hartley until now, Ronald Reagan comes in, essentially fires 12,000 striking workers in the early 1980s to let Americans know you go on strike, you're going to get fired. They are in violation of the law. And if they do not report for work within 48 hours, they have forfeited their jobs and will be terminated. And that really brings down strike activity for the next 25 years or so. There had been this narrative for 30 years that the public wouldn't stand with people when they went on strike and got fired. So when the Chicago strike happened and you saw the outpouring of support, it began to re-raise workers' expectations that, hey, even though they feel really beaten down, they actually have a lot of public support. And when you fast forward to West Virginia, they were the first ones to walk out in this new era of all the strikes we're seeing. When I interviewed a lot of those workers, one, they had met the Chicago teachers. They actually went to find them and seek them out. And two, the place where a lot of them met was the 2016 Sanders campaign. Hmm. And if you look in West Virginia, he won every single Mm -hmm. county. And a lot of these young teachers, when Trump won, said to themselves, wait a minute, we built an amazing movement. What are we going to do now? And then right at that moment, the state legislature in West Virginia announced that they were going to take huge cuts. They were going to have to pay $200 to $400 more per month for their health care, and they were going to get a 1% raise. Hmm. And they said, that's it. We're out of here. And they began to do real grassroots organizing work, teacher to teacher, bus driver to teacher. And when they walked out, it was everyone. I mean, they were drawing on the history of the United Mine Workers. They were drawing on a proud working class tradition in West Virginia. But they have now set ablaze the whole country, a string of workers walking off the job and winning in the education sector, then against the Marriott hotels, then against Stop and Shop this spring, enabled the General Motors workers to say, forget it. What makes an action a victorious action? And how would activists apply it to get the public into the street over climate change policy? What does it take in this moment to tackle the largest 
crisis there is. The most important weapon that workers have is the ability to withdraw their labor and walk off the job. Strategic disruption in strategic sectors, in strategic geographies. And by the way, where the General Motors workers are going on strike is basically a map of the electoral swing states. We've got to get the American working class into and embracing the Green New Deal. And the way to do that is to guarantee not just a good job. There's a different set of words we have to use. Mm -hmm. We have to specifically say to the American worker, you will hold the exact standard that you have working in the fossil fuel sector right now in the clean economy sector. And to do that, we've got to flip the American taxpayer subsidies currently going to the fossil fuel industry to subsidize the jobs and the livelihoods of workers in a clean economy. And we've got to talk about that really honestly and then build the power to shift those subsidies. Does the movement have to address the issue that strikes and this redistribution of wealth and these huge government programs are fundamentally anti-capitalist? Right. If we turn on, you know, Fox News. The Green New Deal, it's a watermelon. Green on the outside, deep, deep red communist on the inside. You hear the same language that we heard during McCarthy period already. But what we need to keep focused on is what is it we're trying to do? We're trying to create a new New Deal. And to get to the first New Deal took massive strikes. To get to a new New Deal so that life on this planet can continue and flourish means we're going to need a second wave of massive strikes. And I think we're seeing the beginning of that realization. Part of why I'm entering this debate is because I spent my first 10 years as an organizer running environmental campaigns. Hmm. And then I shifted into the trade union movement full-time. And I've long said to people— A reflection of the problem in the American progressive movement is that I, as an organizer, am either working for the environmental movement or I'm working for trade unions, and the Green New Deal is the time to say these are not two different movements. For American workers' children to grow up in a healthy environment in this country, it's going to take American workers walking off the job the way we did in 1933 and 1934 and 1935 and forcing employers to the negotiating table to create a different kind of an economy in this country. Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Founded in 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Errett founded the company and named it after her daughter because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com, and they have a special offer for you as a Best of the Left listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's madison-reed.com, and use the promo code LEFT.
We're the what? service employees, International Union, and we were born by immigrant flat janitors. We have 300,000 janitors, security officers, and airport workers, and we have a million healthcare workers in nursing homes, home care, and uh, hospitals, and we have uh, 800,000 public employees uh, that do work in schools, cities, state government, and federal government. And this is the, the, the second largest union by membership? That's right. In America? And I think, you know, People, people don't always know this, right? But the, the sort of, you know, modern face of unions in America is in the service economy roles. That's where the majority of people work of all kinds. Right. Um, and it's not necessarily what sort of comes to people's minds. When they think about unions. Yeah. Right. Like home care is the fastest growing job in the U.S. economy. And uh, it was excluded from the original labor law because that was done by primarily women of color. And in order to get Southern Democrats to vote for the National Labor Relations Act, many workers doing service work were excluded because they were women and people of color. Right. And well, this this gets us in, into the, the, the point, I think, which is, you know, unions are um, private organizations, but exist under a labor law paradigm, which in the United States is different from what you see in most European countries. And I think there's been a lot of attention in previous congressional cycles to the ways in which labor law might make it more difficult to organize unions here than in other places. But SEIU has come out strongly recently in favor of changing sort of how the basic bargaining paradigm works. Yes. For 60 years, our union has been organizing around the existing law because the current law is so broken and so defective. And as I said, so many workers were excluded. We really uh, have asserted that the right to organize doesn't exist anymore. And We've seen uprisings of teachers, the Fight for 15 in a union movement, the high school students. I think there's a general sense that we have to join together in order to build a better life uh, for ourselves. And that's why we thought we needed as a union to make four concrete demands of every presidential candidate for how they're going to make it possible for every worker to join a union no matter what job they do in the U.S. economy. So four demands. You want to you give them to me? Yeah. Under the umbrella of unions for all, uh, we want sectoral bargaining either by geography, by industry nationally, or by occupation. We want the ability for states and uh, cities to be able to innovate above a federal uh, minimum standard for unions as opposed to a federal uh, ceiling, ceiling that's currently holding workers down. Uh, we want every tax dollar to be tied to the creation of good union jobs. And we want every policy proposal to fix the U.S. economy to have at its heart the ability of workers to join unions. So healthcare for all, the 9 million non-union healthcare workers ought to have the right to join a union. College for all, the every uh, education worker and faculty member in universities in this country ought to have the right to join a union. Okay, so I want to talk about sexual bargaining. This is the kind of thing, uh, sort of nerdy stuff. People who did like comparative politics classes and in college <laughs> maybe used to hear about, uh, and haven't been accustomed to in practical American politics. Right. But so the way things work right now to be a little 
broad about it. Uh, you know, we we organized a union here at, at Vox, uh, organized with Writers Guild East. And then the first thing that happens after that is you bargain for a contract. Right. And that is a it's it's a collective undertaking instead of each individual person talking to their boss. Right. You you come together as a group. You know, we bargain concessions around wages, around leave, stuff like that. But it's with specifically our bosses here at Vox. Right. And one consideration that happens is like we all work here. Like we we don't want the company to go out of business because right. that that doesn't help anyone here. And they do like they need to compete with the other companies, right? So when you're there at the table, a consideration always is like, well, does this drag the whole enterprise down? And that's sort of inherent to the bargaining movement. You are limited to an extent by what is out there in the marketplace. And the sectoral approach uh, tries to change that. That's right. So imagine if Vox Media workers were at a national table with all digital media workers thinking about how to raise wages and benefits for everybody, and that competition was based on the content, not on the low road of how uh, much can I extract from the labor of workers who want to get into this sector. And the way it worked in the 30s -hmm. is the Flint sit-down strikers decided to stop working in the factory until uh, GM bargained. And the governor of that state was called on by GM to call out the National Guard to end the strike, and the governor refused. And so in that case, government stood with workers and kind of forced the creation of what was the beginning of a sectoral bargaining agreement in the um, auto sector of the country. But then when the National Labor Relations Act was passed, it forced enterprise-based bargaining with each individual company. Um, and what we want to imagine in this day and age is uh, the next president of the United States getting McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King in the Oval Office and saying it's an outrage that your CEO earns $10,000 an hour when the average fast food workers earns 10, that uh, record profits, uh, they've done share dividends on top of uh, buybacks that they've done. And so let's uh, establish a national bargaining standard for 4 million fast food workers in the U.S., just like these three companies have done all around the world. So we want that uh, concept of sectoral bargaining to either be created through the next version of auto. We will strike and create disruption and uh, sort of bring these companies to their senses. Mm-hmm. Or we will create the politics of the possible at the national level and sign a law into into being. Wait, so so what you what you referenced in the auto industry, right? This is what I, I think in history books will be referred to as the Treaty of Detroit. Correct. Sometimes, right? There was a lot going on in America in the 30s and 40s. <laughs> there was there were there was a depression. There were strikes. There was a war. The the labor law paradigm was not really settled, and so an effort was made by the state government, like they, they wanted to get the factories reopened, but they didn't want to do what the, the companies had wanted them to like bring the National Guard in right, and like drag, drag everybody out. Right. And so they said so they didn't want to do that. They wanted to settle the strike and they wanted to settle it essentially across the industry, right? Which was at that point geographically concentrated in one place. And that set the pattern, right? Even though the National Labor Relations Act did not codify that 
approach. For a long time, we had an automobile industry that was centered in Michigan. That's right. Um, it, it was driven by that understanding. But because of the way the rules are actually written, more and more companies came in. They went into right-to-work states. They organized non-union factories. And we don't have a, a formal framework that then extends those concessions throughout the industry. Right. I, we've done work with the German unions that uh, represent Volkswagen, and mm-hmm. the Volkswagen workers in Germany have the highest standards in auto mm-hmm. in Europe. And they were shocked that uh, the Volkswagen workers in Nashville, Tennessee, tried three times to form a union under our current rigged rules. And the governor, the two state senators, the city council all made it crystal clear to those workers that if they voted yes for the union, they were going to close the plant and move it. And so up against that kind of threat from uh, public uh, elected officials, um, it's really hard to overcome, even when Volkswagen was not uh, campaigning against the union right? because of their German trade union is saying to them, that's not our vision and values. And so the Germans were shocked that in America, that elected officials of the people would basically uh, rig the rules in a way that made workers feel like their economic security was at risk if they voted for the union. Right, right, exactly. And so th- this kind of more more sectoral approach, I mean, I, I don't know if you, you can talk about how, how this works in, in other countries, but... It, the more typical arrangement is to say instead of a contract at a particular company or in America often a particular job location. Correct. Right. Is that you will have a contract for or at least a set of standards for an industry. Right. And the thing that we're up against is trying to create the conditions for both city-wide agreements. Mm-hmm. Like imagine if in L.A. and New York – building on the victory for 15, fast food workers could organize a union and create the conditions for all the fast food companies to be at a citywide multi-employer table Mm -hmm. where they can rationalize schedules, they can deal with the burns on their arms, which is endemic in this industry. Um, They could uh, figure out how to get education and training um, located in the city so they could build a better life for themselves. Again, all these standards exist in Australia and Denmark and other places where these companies operate, and the burgers wouldn't have to cost more, which Mm -hmm. is their big uh, threat. And so that's why we want to both do sectoral bargaining and allow states and cities to innovate Hmm. as we change the politics of the nation and can make a national standard. The National Labor Relations Board has ruled that an employer's misclassification of a worker as an independent contractor instead of an employee, meaning they would lack protections for unionizing and other collective activity, doesn't violate the National Labor Relations Act because it's in no way coercive. In fact, the board's majority argued, the employer who communicates its legal opinion that workers aren't employees 
is engaged in an act of free speech. This is the same National Labor Relations Board that simultaneously maintains that Scabby, the giant inflatable rat that unions use to draw public attention to campaigns, does cross the line from legitimate communication to unlawful coercion. If you're having trouble squaring such positions with the 1935 National Labor Relations Act goals, which include not just protecting employees' rights but encouraging collective bargaining, well, you aren't alone. Here to help us see what the NLRB is up to and what it means is Kate Bronfenbrenner, the Director of Labor Education Research and a Senior Lecturer at Cornell University School of Industrial and Labor Relations. She's co-author and editor of several books on union strategies, including Global Unions, Challenging Transnational Capital Through Cross-Border Campaigns. She joins us now by phone from Ithaca. Welcome to Counterspin, Kate Bronfenbrenner. Great to be here. Well, let's just start with this recent ruling about independent contractors, clearly with reference to gig economy players like Uber and Lyft, who are spending millions to fight initiatives to classify workers as employees. This ruling followed on some earlier moves, a memo from the NLRB's general counsel, Peter Robb, earlier this year, an opinion from the Labor Department. You could see which way the wind was blowing, couldn't you, on this on this really important issue? Yes, I mean, we can just see the big deal that's happening out in California with AB5, where they are about to pass legislation that will turn Lyft and Uber workers into employees. And Lyft and Uber are spending $90 million, they've announced, in order to try to reverse that if it becomes law. So they don't want to pay their workers wages, but they're willing to spend more money than it would cost probably to pay them as employees to fight that. This is a huge deal for workers. If they are independent contractors, they not only are not eligible for minimum wage, they aren't covered by health insurance, they're not covered by all our labor employment law protections, and they don't have the right to organize. Employers are willing to go to great lengths, great lengths is an understatement, to avoid having to have their employees covered by our labor and employment laws. Well, and it sounds like employers are getting kind of a a green light from decisions like this one from the NLRB. And I just find it, it's kind of almost like a wink that says we're saying which side we're on, on this very fraud and, and emerging issue around independent contractors. Well, we could just look at the appointees that came to the board under Trump. The, the first appointee, John Ring, had to recuse himself from the first decision that came before the board when he came through, he was actually involved in the company that the decision was on. He didn't recuse himself, and then they had to reverse the decision because he was actually involved with the employer. It, it says a lot. Well, well, let's pull back just a little bit and explain what the NLRB is. I mean, it's kind of like the FCC. You've just indicated it's these five presidential appointees. It's always going to be weighted by the party that's in power. But right now, there's just four of them, right? There's a vacant seat. That's right. Well, their rulings are binding, though, even if you're not used to seeing them in the in the headlines. But they do have a, a, a legal effect in workplaces, right? They do. And... They've always been somewhat of a political animal in that 
you know, the president, when there's a vacancy, they get to fill that vacancy. But it's never been an effort to have extreme people on the board. Right. But under the Trump administration, the appointees have been extremists, and that has really changed the tenor of the board. Well, I wanted to to draw you out a bit on that because I saw you cited in a piece by Bobby Murray at Capitol in Maine saying that it's not uncommon when an administration changes, when a new White House comes in, for National Labor Relations Boards to reverse some decisions, some preceding decisions, but that what's happening now with the Trump NLRB is of a different order. What what are you talking about there? The decisions have been to reverse long-standing precedents as opposed to reversing cases that have been always debated. So before, the trend was to reverse cases that have been always one of debate, where there was a one-vote difference. Mm -hmm. But now, the reversals have been on cases that had been upheld for decades, and that's a very different, very different trend. Long-standing principles before the board. Well, can you talk about a recent decision on how employers can stop bargaining? It sounds like it's minutiae and it's huge, in fact, in its impact, this new decision, calling for a new union election every time the contract is up for expiration. The board is now giving employers much more power to question the majority status of the unit. Before, it was up to workers to file a desert petition at the end of the contract. If workers wanted to decertify the union, it was up for workers to file decertification. Decertification means that they no longer want the union. But the employer wasn't the one that initiated that. The workers did. The only way the employer could say that they felt that the union shouldn't be there is if they had a really strong reason to believe the union no longer represented the majority. For example, that there had been a complete turnover in the workforce. Mm-hmm that they knew that all the workers they had hired were no longer there. But now the employer can call for an election and that there should be a decertification election and not wait for the workers to do that. And they can do that every time the contract expires. That's a huge change. And sort of throw everything into turmoil. It just seems like a tremendous lever to move over to the employer's hand. And most of all, it means the union has to spend energy every time the contract comes up, the union has to spend its energy dealing with running through an election process rather than working on building the power for bargaining. And unions will probably win those, but it's a negative effort rather than the positive effort of building power for bargaining. Well, I think that although listeners may not have known about some of these NLRB decisions, they may not be surprised. They are kind of fitting in with a slew of anti-worker actions that we've seen from this administration, from letting companies that commit wage theft police themselves, you know, and denying extension of overtime protections and undercutting anti-discrimination enforcement. We could go on and on. But I know that at the same time as we see this administration trying to lock down this anti-organizing board, we also do see a lot of tangible worker victories, teachers, for instance, but then also the fight for 15. And if you expand your understanding of who labor is, there's plenty to see right now that's encouraging, don't you think? Well, we see young workers more excited about unions than ever before. And that means that the future will have more union support that's a positive trend that is very exciting. 
We see an, an increased interest among white-collar workers. We see digital media is organizing. We see workers across the industrial spectrum organizing. That's a new trend. We also see that immigrant workers, despite all the pressures against them, what a frightening time it is, that they are organizing. And despite all the shenanigans about misclassification of workers, contract workers have been organizing for decades. Mm-hmm. And I think that it shows that no matter what employers do, workers still try to organize. So Uber workers and Lyft workers have been going on strike trying to organize. Yeah, it seems that workers recognize that the playing field is not what it was, but there is, if anything, maybe uh, maybe I'm hopeful, but I do see a revival of worker-organized activity inside and outside of traditional unions, as we understand them. Yes, and there's been a groundswell of organizing among low-wage workers, high-tech workers, and much of it is led by women of color. In these dark times, there aren't a whole lot of unambiguously positive things you can do to make the world a measurably better place, but there is at least one piece of low-hanging fruit that I always recommend. To help with our shift to a renewable energy future, we can sign up for renewable energy in our homes and offices. Depending on where you live, renewable energy may even be cheaper than the old fossil fuel sources, and of course, you only have to sign up once and reap the rewards effortlessly, indefinitely. If you live or work in New York, York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, D.C., Delaware, Illinois, Massachusetts, or Ohio, you can sign up with the clean energy company I've partnered with, Clean Choice Energy. To sign up and support the show by letting them know that I sent you, just visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best. You can easily find that link right in the show notes on the device you're using to listen right now, or you'll find it on the sidebar of the homepage at bestofleft.com. It'll make you feel good every time you see your electricity bill, so don't wait. There's no Nothing stopping you from signing up to use renewable energy right now, and it's easier than you think. Again, visit cleanchoiceenergy.com slash best to get started. When it comes to energy, now you have a choice. To understand the role that labor will play in the 2020 election, I sat down with Dave Jameson, a labor reporter for HuffPost. The state in general is... Not great in the long term. Union membership is really kind of hovering at a historic low right now. Only 6.5% of private sector workers are in a union. There was once a day when it was closer to one in every three. So unions are at a pretty diminished state, and they have been for a while. That said, um, I think there are some bright spots for labor going on that we've seen In the last few years, you take the teacher strikes that we saw last year sweeping the country. The fight for 15 has been a huge success. So there's been a bit of a rejuvenation. And I think unions are at actually have a pretty good opportunity rolling into 2020. There's a big democratic field. I think they're in a strong position to really influence things. The stereotype, I think, when folks hear the term labor union is a white dude with a hard hat or a guy working on a an assembly line, maybe at an auto plant. But what is the union membership? Like, what does it look like now? 
It's been changing. And I think that stereotype is there because it was true at a certain point. You know, decades ago, the, the idea of the, the construction worker in the hard hat with his union sticker on it is very true and still partly true. But the demographics are changing. And one clear trend we're seeing, uh, we're seeing more women in the labor movement. Obviously, that's partly a function of there being more women in the workforce now than there were decades ago. But women also happen to work in fields where unions are, are making a lot of progress. Teachers, nurses, home care workers, a lot of women work those jobs. Those jobs are growing and the unions in them are growing as well. Uh, another trend we see is it becoming less white. There are a lot of Latino workers who are in unions now that has been growing over the years. That's not surprising, given the demographic changes in the U.S. The share of black workers who are in unions has remained fairly steady for a long time, but we see the white share going down and the Latino share going up. And we've also seen in recent years is I think unions generally embracing immigrant workers. Membership in unions has steadily been decreasing. There's talk that maybe there won't be union uh, presence in the same way we've seen, um, you know, in the next 20 years, it may look totally different. Um, how then do unions still have so much influence in the party and in a primary when their numbers have diminished so significantly? Unions still run a, a very effective ground game. You look at a union, and I'm, I know you following politics, you have heard of the Culinary Workers Union in Las Vegas. They are a political powerhouse. They've unionized the virtually the entire strip. They are majority women. They are nearly half immigrants. And they, they are strong enough that they can basically be a kingmaker in, in Nevada. They can put the state in your column, potentially. And so even though organized labor as a whole is diminished, unions, I, I think, still hit above their weight when it comes to the politics. And the money. Yes. And they still are significant funders for Democrats, right? Are they still the number one funder for Democrats of any other sort of group or organization sector? I think, yeah, if you group all, all unions together, sure. And and it's been that way for decades. You know, unions going back years, Democrats have generally been, you know, their allies. They, they stand up for the similar principles. And Republicans have led a lot of the, the attacks on unions. You look at right to work laws and things like that. Well, and there's also been a lot of discussion, especially with the rise of Donald Trump, that Democrats have been losing support, especially from white male union members. For years, the talk was losing them over cultural issues like guns. Now it's that they really do like Trump personally, the way he appeals to them, both on cultural but also economic issues, right? I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to get your jobs back. I'm going to reopen the coal mines. How significant is that support and how worried are labor unions themselves about the fact that Trump does have a personal appeal that to their rank and file members, even though the leadership may be endorsing Democrats? Trump does have an appeal with, with those, uh, you know, stereotypical Midwest union voters. I do think it's overstated a bit. You know, the AFL-CIO says that in 2016, Trump did about three points better than Mitt Romney. The way we talk about it, you think he did 20 points better with, with, you, with their, their members. Um, it's really not not the case. Uh, but yeah, so Trump, three points oh, in, in three yes. states. I mean, he won Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin by less than a point. Yes. So three points is kind of a big deal. And, and look, you could make the case that 
you know, Scott Walker going after unions in Wisconsin that he, he gave the presidency to Trump, uh, you know. Trump won Wisconsin, and, and unions were so diminished after after um, Act Ten in, in Wisconsin that they're they're not nearly as politically effective as they used to be. And so, I I think there's a sense that there needs to be a, a lot of rebuilding, especially in the Midwest, by unions, not just with membership but politically as well. Another issue that seems to be uh, a big one in the Democratic primary is health care, Medicare for all. But it's also a big issue among the labor community. I think it it already has become a, a bit of a wedge issue, and on the whole, I think un, a lot of unions are sort of, you know, keeping it close to the vest where they are on on Medicare for all. The the issue here is if you you move to something like Medicare for all, and how does that impact the really good health plans that a lot of unions have negotiated for their members? And you know, Joe Biden has kind of trotted this out. He's not a backer of Medicare for all. And he has specifically held up union members as people who who would be hurt by this. And so I think there's sort of, um, you know, understandable concern if I'm some housekeeper in the culinary workers union, if we're going to move to Medicare for all, what's that going to mean for this awesome health care plan that I have and that I put so much sweat equity into that I literally went on strike over, right? Um, But what a lot of union leaders are saying, too, who who are open to Medicare for all is, is they're saying, hey, look. If we take healthcare off the table, you know, then we can plow all of our leverage, all of our bargaining power into raising wages. Democrats, like, all agreed they were going to do this. They all said they were going to do it. They sort of did better in the 2008 election than people had thought they were going to do. Had the votes. And then they just didn't do it. Well, we, I would say from our perspective, we got pulled into two years of fighting to make healthcare accessible and more affordable mm-hmm. for 20 million more Americans, which is, was a huge step forward. Mm-hmm. Um, it needs to be strengthened and we're part of the debate for healthcare for all. But I'd have to say, Matt, um, for us, EFCA, is now not a demand that is worth reorganizing around. Mm-hmm. And it's why our union has said that we have to go beyond the mechanism for how workers organize and make the case that the right to organize doesn't exist any longer because the laws you're referring to require workers to walk over hot coals mm-hmm. in most cases and thread a needle to get a union at their workplace. Mm-hmm. And that the system is broken mm-hmm. and it has to be rewritten. Mm-hmm. And that's why corporate profits are at an all-time high. It's why 25 uh, Americans earn more than 125 million Americans. The gross racial and economic inequality, we assert is because these rules have been broken for working people and working people no longer have the power in Mm -hmm. the economy uh, to raise wages for everybody. So when 33 million people were bargaining in the 50s and 60s, wages were going up for everybody. And since the 70s, uh, wages have become stagnant because there's been a systematic attack on the ability of workers being able to join together in unions. Uh, Scott Walker, Act 10, perfect example of the destruction of the ability of workers to join together and bargain a better life in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. But so, I mean, I, I guess what, I, what I'm <laughs> driving at is like, 
one question is like, what are sort of technicalities or, or aspirational goals that people will sign on to? Another is like in politics, like like what do they want to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like really and truly. And the strong sense I got at watching Democrats govern in 2009-2010 is that, you know, it, it just – it turned out that they did not, in fact, want to significantly increase mm-hmm. union membership mm-hmm. in the United States. Yes. They weren't against it necessarily. Yes. But, you know, when their vote count started slipping and some other things were maybe not working out, it wasn't like, you know, well, we're going to go over the wall. We're going to batter a hole through the door. We're going to do everything we can, right? It was kind of, uh, sorry, guys. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I uh, now understand the point you're making. I agree that neither Republicans nor Democrats in the current democracy have it in their self-interest to promote the ability of workers to join together in unions because it checks corporate power in uh-huh. the economy. And because corporate power matters so much for financing the current elections, it does put all candidates from uh, all parties in a predicament um, to be forceful in standing with uh, working people. Yeah, and I, I always find, I mean, I think about a, 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 one of my my earliest editors, Paul Starr, and he, he always made this point that, you know, when he would speak to donors to progressive causes, um, you know, wealthy people by definition, usually people involved in business, that they would be very happy to agree to lots of things uh, on the goal to, you know, not just like social causes or cultural issues, but real economic changes, paying higher taxes, having less money. I mean, that's not every wealthy person, but right. but the wealthy people who, who he knew. Yeah. Fine. Like, yes, I totally agree. Like, save the environment, healthcare for everybody, great schools. But when it came to the idea of unions, they would be very, very, very hesitant because it's about changing power. Correct. And people, even well-intentioned people, like to have power to do their well-intentioned things with. Right. That's right. And that's why we think one of the core demands on Unions for All is every proposal to fix the American economy should have at its heart the ability of workers to join unions. So if we're going to fight for health care for all, let's create a way for every health care worker to join a union. Mm-hmm. If we're going to um, have universal child care, let's take the poverty wage work that's never been valued, is currently excluded from laws in this country, and allow child care providers to join together. In unions. If we're going to um, have college for all, mm-hmm. um, we need to take the 80% of the workforce that has been part timed and contracted, mm-hmm. which are adjunct faculty, lecturers, they, they're all a bunch of fancy names, but mm-hmm. basically they are a contingent workforce that are uh, teaching the next generation and are living in poverty. Mm-hmm. And when, let's create a way for every person that works on a college campus, a janitor, a secretary, a faculty person, uh, to form a union.
We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, highlighting some important points of labor organizing history and the high points of some of the Democratic candidates' labor plans. On the Media talked with Jane McAlevey about more labor history and the increasing effectiveness of labor organizing today. The Weeds spoke with an SEIU representative about the Next Generation plan for collective bargaining across sectors rather than company by company. Counterspin discussed the recent ruling by the Trump-appointed Labor Relations Board, tilting the scales against mislabeled contract workers. The Takeaway discussed the role of labor in the upcoming election. And finally, we just heard The Weeds discussing the political dynamics that leave worker rights outside the interests of both political parties. Members will hear more details on uh, Biden's dicey record on unions and labor rights, contrary to what he would like to have you believe, more on the long-term political history that's led the labor movement to this point, as well as a dive into the labor organizing of domestic workers. To hear that and all of our bonus content, which includes more voicemails and commentary from me, plus ad-free versions of every regular episode, sign up as a patron of the show at patreon.com slash bestofleft. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Bud from Boise. Just finished listening to uh, episode 1323, Power to the People. A lot of a lot of food for thought. I really enjoyed it. Uh, one of the things that caught my attention the most was the idea, of course, of uh, public ownership. Uh, a red flag for me was the idea of the public sharing in the profits. If this actually means sharing a, a dividend, I think that's a bad idea because it brings profit back into the equation. I think it would be better to just share the profit by lowering cost, and uh, that would benefit people of low economic status even uh, more than it would benefit people of high economic status. But everybody would win, and it would be somewhat universal. Just my thoughts. Stay awesome. Hey, Jay. Uh, I just heard your story about um, growing up in kind of a liberal, more progressive household, and I thought it might be interesting to give my side. This is Corey from New Jersey. I always grew up in an Irish Catholic household, leaning liberal. Mom was liberal on the liberal side, at least, and uh, dad's more conservative. I have spent a good deal of the last couple months pulling her left, and I feel like I'm doing God's work because I just feel like that's the right way to be. And I'm still, uh, I still go to church. I work for a church part time, and I don't feel any qualms about it because I just feel like the left is more accepting and more tolerant of every viewpoint. So I've been doing this work to pull my mom left. And initially she was totally for Biden because he was, quote unquote, the only person who can beat Trump. And I used data to show her that Bernie most likely would have beaten Trump in 2016 and that he's still our best pick today. I think a populist candidate resonates with people. And I think 
I kind of proved it by showing it resonating with my mother, who is swayable, like a lot of the electorate is. I know a lot of leftists, and like I had this idea for a long time, felt that most people's minds are made up. But there is a deluge of people who are swayable, and it's our job to talk to them with reason and respect and convince them of our position. Thanks. That's about it, Jay. Hi, Jay. This is uh, Jag from the UK. I've been listening to your show on and off for about well, a few years now, and uh, heard your section on depression the other day, which sort of struck me as quite relevant for all of us. And um, it's important to, you know, take care of yourself. But I also want to say, it's also, like, the podcast is really, really important. Because um, even to me on the other side of the pond, it's just, I suppose, it's really useful to uh, be able to refer to points that I've heard on your podcast even maybe three or four years back now in conversations that I'm having with people at work. So, and I do, I do on on a daily basis. Uh, So I guess I just wanted to say I'm uh, really grateful for all the hard work you and your team put in and uh, into the production of this show. So, yeah, thanks. Keep up the good work. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to our production assistant, Joel McKean, who helps gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Just a quick note on uh, pulling people to the left. I completely agree. almost no one should be given up on like you know i i wasn't even going to go in this direction but it, in this moment i just remembered uh the the path that uh you know some like neo-nazis have taken going through the life after hate program to you know i don't know what uh you know christian piccolini's uh, politics are these days maybe he touched on them but he's certainly not a white supremacist anymore and and he was so pretty much anyone can be pulled to the left Uh, what i was going to say is that just from personal experience this show has converted conservatives into progressives i've heard from them so there's no reason to think that a biden supporter couldn't be pulled a little bit to the left especially i think when you explain as i have recently the arc of political history and the changing tide we are experiencing right in this moment and the fact that we are no longer uh, shackled by the ghost of Reagan or entering a, a populist progressive era, or, I mean, at least that helps explain why people like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are so popular. Like, I, I think you can make a really legitimate argument that if Bernie ran for president 20 years ago, he would have been laughed off stage. And and the people who have been around for a while thought that was going to happen again in 2015, 2016, and it didn't. And it shocked them because their entire political lives have happened in the Reagan era. And they just thought, like, 
this isn't going to fly. And yet here we are. Uh, and, and so some people are leading the charge on changing that tide and other people are sort of dragging behind and are confused and don't know what's happening. But I, th- I think anyone could be shown what's happening, come to a new understanding. And, you know, they, they may like it, they may not like it, but uh, but pretty much anyone has the capacity to be pulled to the left if if given, you know, the right kinds of information. With, with the caveat that I, what I always say is uh, ask people questions a lot more than you tell them things. Because only by asking people where they are, what their thoughts currently are, that's how you can get a window into what sort of information are they even going to be open to. You know, if you, if you give someone a speech based on talking points that resonate with you, it may fall flat with them. But if you talk to them about where they are and, and what matters to them, then you can actually speak to their concerns and be a lot more effective. Uh, secondly, totally unrelated, I, I wanted to mention just a nice little coincidence, but, uh, so Amanda and I, obviously, on Monday of this week, we were watching the, the I don't know what they were, I guess, hearings, you know, the impeachment uh, of the day, and the all the lawyers were just questioning themselves all, all day. But it sparked a conversation because, you know, for the entire Trump era, we've been asking ourselves, like, what's up with these Republicans? We know they hate him. And yet, and and they sort of attacked him at first in the primaries, right? And then one by one, they all fell into line, or at least nearly all of them. And and so the question is always, how how much do they mean what they're saying? And and you can imagine, you know, like two two three years ago, they all meant what they said when they said they hated him. And then when they started saying that he was not so bad or pretty good, you thought like they're lying through their teeth. And they're telling journalists all the time off the record that they can't stand the guy. So uh, the the question is, has that changed over time? Because like bit by bit, and I, I don't just mean the really radical conservatives, but bit by bit, I'm starting to get the impression like they're starting to buy their own nonsense that they they have been saying this stuff for so long that they're starting to believe it themselves. And so, so we had this conversation, Amanda and I did yesterday, and, and here's my theory on it, which, as a caveat, I think is probably not my theory. I probably heard it from somewhere else, but forgot that I heard it from somewhere else, and now I've just adopted it as my own. But I thought of it yesterday, and it felt like a fresh idea. And I thought, you know, when you, when you go out and because of political expediency or necessity, you start defending someone who you hate, like Donald Trump, at first— you you hate it, you don't like that you have to do that, but you do it because you have to. But over time, you become what you are, you become what you do, you become what you say, right? So so like the line starts to blur a little bit. And then like, okay, where's the line between the real me and the me who goes out on television and defends Donald Trump as a Republican politician? So, so maybe the line starts to get blurred a little bit, but here's where it gets really scary is that once you have taken the position to defend Donald Trump in, in whatever context over the last few years, then all of a sudden you are exposed to attack for having done that. 
And so then when you are attacked or questioned or, you know, your integrity is questioned because you said that he was the worst thing to ever happen to politics and now you say that he's the great leader of the party, you know, it seems reasonable to question someone's integrity when they go down that path. Then all of a sudden it becomes personal. And so then that that debate almost dissolves because then defending Trump continuously becomes a matter of defending one's self because to say okay no actually i have been lying this whole time like people can't handle that they can't uh, manage that level of cognitive dissonance and they can't deal with that level of criticism being directed at them without getting defensive and when people get defensive they get irrational and they're willing to say whatever it takes to make themselves feel good about themselves. So then it's like not even anything to do with Trump. It's all to do with themselves and making themselves feel good. And and I don't just mean like feel good in a good, but like to feel like they can sleep at night, to feel that they're a good person. That, that's what I mean. Because if they thought like, I'm a horrible hypocrite who lies for a living. Like that that's a hard thing for a person to live with. So so anyway, the the coincidence that makes me bring all this up is the uh the the comic strip F minus. I think I've talked about it maybe once before. It's uh yeah, I, I don't read that many comics, but this is my my go-to that I I enjoy on a daily basis. And and so today's comic is a perfect fit for for this discussion. And so it's real simple. It's just two people having a conversation and one says to the other, I'm having trouble remembering which thoughts are my actual opinions and which are just things I say to make people mad. And I think that's a nice <laughs> uh, glimpse, not just into sort of uh, modern day life and, and how we have conversations with each other, but but also a little bit into that, that deeper psychological issue of um of of how we at times i mean i try not to but um how how people across the political spectrum end up defending the indefensible when it becomes a a matter of personal interest and now finally the last thing for today uh, i would just bring up that our fundraiser is ongoing just quick refresher we are facing a fiscal cliff due to advertising companies who I am not going to be able to continue to work with after the beginning of the year. I have been working with this company for a few years. They've been bringing in about a third of the income that that helps run the show, and they are moving in in the direction of uh, you know Facebook and and uh, you know drilling down into people's privacy and and trying to uh, you know track and and spy on people's user behavior and and habits and purchasing habits and whatever data they can manage to get out of you to more precisely target advertising in the show. I'm not comfortable with this. I think most of you are also not comfortable with this. I've I've heard from some and I, I recognize that some people think like, hey, this is how the internet works. So don't shoot yourself in the foot and not go along with it. Just I, you know, tell us what's happening and then do what you got to do. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that perspective and that sort of willingness to sacrifice for the benefit of the show. I'm trying to not go down that path. And sorry, when I say trying, that's not a threat. That's not like a, okay, and I'm going to do it if, if I don't get enough donors, but we're going to hit some, some financial difficulties at the beginning of the year. If we don't get 
a you know a, a healthy um, extra dose of donors, and th- that which is to say, I cannot thank enough the people who have already been stepping up. In the neighborhood of 200 people have stepped up in the last couple of months, signed up as patrons on Patreon, anywhere from a couple of bucks to, you know, a lot of people have gone higher. Some some people were already patrons and upped their donation to increase that, you know, that average uh, pledge per patron number, which, which makes it so that, you know, if you can only afford a couple of bucks, it, it really makes a difference because... Some people are donating more. Some people are donating less. It's all going to average out. So anyway, I, I, I cannot thank enough all the people who've already signed up. Um, as we come to the end of the year, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't say exactly that we're within striking distance of the goal. However, the way fundraisers like this tend to go is that there's a, a, a nice um, rush of panicked last minute pledgers right at the end. And so uh, that's who I'm hoping to hear from. If, if you're a panicked last minute pledger, now is the time. So if you want to support the show, I, and I, I don't know, I, no one's ever said, Hey Jay, you sound disingenuous when you're saying like, Hey, a couple of bucks would help because like who really needs a couple of bucks? No one's ever said that I sound disingenuous, but I, I just like, I'll say it in a variety of different ways to try to get across the message. It really, really makes a difference because there are lots of you. I get if you think like, hey, my two bucks doesn't make a, you know, a big difference. It's not that big of a deal. I get that thinking. But enough people together who are like, yeah, hey, I got a couple of bucks. It's no big deal. I'll give it to the show. And a few hundred of you come together and do that. And it really may be the difference between, oh my God, we hit a fiscal cliff and things are really tough to, okay, we're being supported by the listeners and we can feel good about that. Like you could absolutely make the difference genuinely, even if you're only donating donating a couple of bucks because you're not in it alone. There's a whole group of you doing that. So uh, if, if you're interested Sign up at patreon.com slash best of left. That link is in the show notes. It's there for every episode. You can't miss it. And uh, I, I just will say again, I can't thank enough all the people who've already signed up or, or increased their pledges. And to those of you who are you know on the brink of signing up, thank you in advance. So that's going to be it for today. Keep the comments coming in as always at 202-999-3991. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making donations of any size. That URL again, patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is, now more than ever, absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So, coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com.
And now everyone's favorite a bit of news by Limerick. And you may have noticed I didn't have a Limerick in the previous episode. That's because I respect the Limerick too much. And frankly, I didn't have any that I, I thought rose to the, the proper level to share with you. Uh, today, though, I do. And the news is about Trump and the White House, of course, guided by his lawyers, as always, deciding to not testify in his own defense as part of the impeachment hearings. And so at Limerick underscore news writes, the White House will not be complying and POTUS won't be testifying because in our view, and you know this is true, we've no way to stop him from lying. 